You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. I am recording this live in Hawaii with Gempo Roche, who's been on the show once before. Gempo has become a friend, and he's a Buddhist master who teaches the big mind form of meditation and has been studying for about 40 years. And I wanted to take this episode to talk about happiness specifically with him and what he's learned from his path, which has been a very long and interesting path. So we're going to go into it for about a half hour. And I think you'll find a lot of really insightful and useful information because if you want to perform better as a human being and you're unhappy all the time, uh, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> what if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. So, Kempo, <laughs> thank you for taking time out on this uh, vacation that I think we're, we're both having here. You just finished teaching uh, one of your... Uh, five-day retreats, and I, I appreciate the extra time to have an interview for our listeners. First, for people who missed the, the first episode with you, uh, can you walk me through sort of your history? What made you become a, a Zen master, and what were the big formative experiences? And then let's dial in specifically on what you learned about happiness in your own path. You know, Dave, that that's an interesting question. I've been asked similar questions a lot, but you said, what made you become a Zen master. It's kind of interesting. So I have to backtrack. So February of 71, I had my big opening or awakening that changed my life forever. Uh, I now can say forever. (laughs) (laughs) At that point, I wasn't sure it was going to be that uh, that, uh, forever kind of thing. But that awakening, I, I... I left everything else behind. I gave notice my teaching career that I was going to uh, to leave in June, and I did. And uh, I went off to the mountains, and I was sitting on a mountain peak in Glacier National Park, and it's called Forty Mountain Peak. And why is you, from that spot you look down at Forty Mountain Peaks? Wow. And it was pretty incredible, and I'd hiked in. It's a 50-mile hike from Glacier to Waterton National Park. And uh, I was sitting there and contemplating, meditating, and I realized not that I would become a Zen master, that I was a Zen master, that that was my life's journey. And 
that, yes, I wasn't really at the time a Zen master. I hadn't even met a Zen teacher yet. Uh, but I had had this profound opening in February, and here it was in June. And I realized this was my calling, this was my mission. And now I just kind of had to fill in the gaps. You know, I had to find a Zen teacher, and I had to study and get the transmission and become uh, legitimately so. But it was like, this was who I am. And, and I use this a lot, and in fact, I, I help other people with this too. Rather than your goal is out there and you have to reach it, already see yourself as having fulfilled it. And then come from that place, it's already a done deal. Now I just have to do, go through what it takes to make manifest it as a reality. And that's kind of been my trip for the last 46 years. Or seven years now. Over that time, uh, you've definitely focused on happiness, and you've been a, I'd say, a little bit disruptive because you've been talking about, well, is is there a way to achieve some of the states of advanced meditation uh, more quickly using different breathing exercises or different postures and things like that? Sort of evolving right. ancient wisdom, uh, which is being a disruptor is always a little bit. A little bit challenging. Disruptive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess that's why they call it that. But the same thing happens in, in medicine. You know, the, right. the doctors who come around and say, what if what you put on your plate is as important as the drugs you're taking? And, and they're heretics. And then you know, a few years later, it's like, oh, maybe there's some value to that. And then things start to change. And I think even one of the people sort of uh, poking the bear, for lack of a, of a better analogy, they're saying, you know, it, is there a way to evolve at least some parts of teaching so that someone who maybe doesn't have 10 years to go spend on a mountaintop can at least get some of the benefits which would contribute to their happiness right. or their ability to just be a better human being. Well, you know, back in, I think it was 73, I was living in Santa Barbara, and I remember being on this walk where I realized that the most important thing for me now was to find a way to help others reach the state of enlightenment or awakening, uh, which happened very spontaneous for me. I, I hadn't been training or practicing anything. I was just sitting on a mountaintop in the Mojave Desert, and it, it happened. You know, it was, you could say, grace of God or whatever. It just happened, you know. Um, and I had no uh, practice previously to get there. So I was realizing that, Somehow, this approach of Zen, where we sit in a monastery for years and decades and so on, uh, was going to marry Western psychotherapy. There was going to be an integration or a marriage. In China, Buddhism married Taoism and became what we know as Zen. So Zen is a, a marriage between Buddhism and Taoism. And I was contemplating there as I was walking in Santa Barbara, what's going to be the marriage here? And I realized it's going to be Western psychotherapy, not necessarily Western religion, but Western psychotherapy and Zen, Japanese Zen, as I was learning it. And in 1999, so whatever that difference is, because that was kind of my thing, my con, you could say, my question, how 
to help people awaken in the most expedient way, in a way that is not necessarily dependent on years and years of training, meditating, and living in a monastery. And I developed or created what we call the big mind, now called big mind, big heart process. And what that was, was I realized that everything is already inherent within all of us. So the, the state of the highest state of enlightenment is already there, but we don't know how to tap into it. We don't know how to get to that place, that deep place within us, that allows us to manifest that kind of enlightened state or enlightened presence. And I was training in voice dialogue work, and I started that in 1984, 83-84, with Hal Stone, the founder of Voice Dialogue. And I trained with him until June, twice a week. And he became one of my mentors and teachers. And I realized that there was something to be, let's say, integrated into Zen practice that a way to do it was asked to speak to that part of the brain that's already awakened. And I called that big mind. So most of us are operating from a place where our mind is contracted. And we call it ego-centered or self-centered. And we're coming from a place of dualism where we see ourselves separate from the world, separate from others. So you and I are seen as separate. I'm not Dave. Dave's not me. What I realized was that we could tap in not just to emotions and feelings, but altered states of consciousness just by asking to speak to it. So I was working with a young gentleman who had just graduated uh, from the university. And I was with a group of 80 people I was teaching. And he was just one participant. And I said to him, may I speak to Big Mind, please? And the moment he said, okay, you're now speaking to Big Mind, I said, look in and just see how big you are. See if you can find any limit, any borders, any parameters. Now, the key here is, if I'm speaking as the self, and I look into the mind, it's kind of, you see thoughts, you see things, but you don't have that experience. But the moment I said, let me speak to big mind, now, from that place, and our listeners can just do that right here, right now, just say, okay, I'm big mind, now look in and see just how big you are. And immediately you can't find a size, you can't find a shape, you can't find a color, you can't find a parameter, you can't find a limit. You're limitless, you're boundless, you're eternal, you're infinite. There's, you, you don't find anything called mind. That is the Zen experience. Now, that's just part of the journey because we have then the experience that I am unborn, and I am undying. But we don't live that way. So it takes years to uh, we call integrate and live that, live our talk, live, you know, walk the talk, be able to manifest living in a place of complete happiness, complete freedom, complete peace. So it does take time. But the experience, a state experience, is immediate. 
It takes no time. It's outside the parameters of space and time. It's outside time and space. But to actually manifest and live that, of course, takes time. And that took me many years. It's only in the last, let's say, five, six years, I could truly say I'm happy. It wasn't something I even searched for because I was taught, and what my teacher used to say, happiness is transient. It's, it's impermanent. Happiness comes and goes, and it's true. There is a conditioned happiness that we all experience from time to time. When conditions are right, we feel really happy, and the conditions change, and we're no longer happy. But there is an unconditional state of happiness that's not based on conditions, where we are just basically sustainably happy. We just come from a place of happiness. This place is not based on conditions. It's not based on that somebody may die and you feel maybe not so happy about it. You know, you feel a lot of empathy, a lot of sympathy, a lot of compassion for their loved ones and, and for them and so on. But you're coming from a place of happiness. That's your basic foundation. And then you experience happiness. And that, on a conditional level, can be more or less, depending on. Now, the conditional, i found there's a few things that seem to be required and why it took me so long to really be able to say I'm truly happy. I wouldn't have said this five years ago. And, and would a traditional Zen master say they're happy? And if they're well, not my own. Teacher? Okay, not, not my teacher. own. Okay. <laughs> Tibetans will say that. Okay. I've met Tibetan lamas who will say I'm happy. But in Zen, my teacher said happiness is not it's not our goal. Okay. Okay? Uh, understanding and realization is. So realization is important because one of the things that keeps us from being happy is that we're constantly seeking something other than the way it is. Something greater, better, uh, happier, <laughs> um, stronger, whatever. And so when we're seeking we can't be that happy. There is a certain happiness from seeking that comes. We identify as a seeker, and we have uh, a purpose, we have a mission in life, and that gives us direction, and we're quite happy with that. But there's still a gap. We, there's one who seeks, and there's one who finds. And the seeker never finds. The seeker is always a seeker. So if we're identified with the part of ourself that's continuously seeking, we're never there. It's always just a carrot stick away. The carrot at the end of the stick away in front of the horse. And so we're always seeking. When we see seeking or access that part of our brain that is not a seeker, not seeking, it's already there, then there's happiness on a conditional level. So, my teacher, in some ways, I don't think ever reached that. In fact, I was here in Hawaii, and it was, I was getting out of the car, and my wife said to me, do you think Roshi's happy? Roshi means Zen master. That was my teacher. We called him Roshi. And I was getting out of the car. I said no, and I walked out of the car, and I realized what I had just said. I just said my teacher will never be happy. 
And I go, what the hell am I doing? I had been, this was 1986. So I'd been studying with him since 1972. So I just spent 14 years, <laughs> and I'm saying my teacher's not happy and never will be. And that really brought up what I call great doubt. What the hell have I been doing all these years? What have I given my life to? I really gave my life to it. Completely gave everything up and entered the monastery and, and studied with him all those years. What's this all about if I'm not happy? And I was sitting there and I had this great awakening where I realized that it's a very conditioned thing and I became one with the whole cosmos, the whole universe in a very profound way and became one with him, one with all the Buddhas and ancestors. And I remember greeting him about a month later and I gave him an embrace. And it was the first time that there was no separation between he and I. And what happened was I accepted him completely as he is. And there was no longer this idea that he had to become or be happy or perfect. And in that moment, I no longer had to become perfect or happy. It was a state of complete, you could say, radical acceptance of who I am and who he was. So you didn't feel like you needed to become happy, but you still wanted to become happy. No, not at that point. No, okay. At that point, happiness was not an issue. At that point, it was there was nothing to do and, and so on. That, yet that was 86. And I can honestly say it wasn't until just a few years ago that I really can say I'm happy. So that's a lot of time in and between. A few big things happened. A few big in that things time. happened. You want to kind of briefly talk about that? One of them was, of course, that I then moved into that Zen Center in 1972, and I trained, well, until his death in 1994, I trained very closely, intimately with my teacher and became a successor, a, a sensei, a dharma teacher, and eventually a roshi in 1996 as a master. But I had numerous experiences in that period, and I had mentioned earlier to you in 94, I had a profound one. So there was the 86 experience, and then there was a 94, where actually whatever enlightenment I had attained dropped away. And we say you have to ascend the mountain, and then you have to descend the mountain. So I had ascended it, and then in 1994 was my first descent, where you let go of the enlightened experience, and you see yourself as an ordinary human being, no longer as just a Buddha, but now as also an ordinary human being. That was very profound, and it changed my way of teaching. It changed everything about... Uh, our Zen Center, which was at that point located in Salt Lake City, uh, in that I felt like it was no longer a monastic practice. We, we changed it into more where it was accessible for people of, uh, in, the, in the world, you know, ordinary people. 
and became less monastic. At that point, we had 50 monks training there in Salt Lake with me. Uh, and then we opened it up to more to the public. And I started sending the monks out and go, go share whatever you've learned. Go out and share it. In 2011 was another descent. We, we say that there's five stages in towards enlightenment. The first is a glimpse or an enlightened experience. The second is all about devotion and surrender, letting go, letting go, letting go. Because, of course, almost all our problems are caused by clinging, by holding on. That's the cause of suffering. So we hold on to things. So the process of letting go, letting go, letting go. The third stage is great enlightenment. That's what happened in 86. And that is a complete loss of ego. And ego drops away, and that's called great enlightenment or great death. In 94 was the first descent. That's the fourth stage where you let go of whatever that is, that enlightenment, and you realize Again, there's a greater loss of the ego. Because ego always comes back. It always comes back. So, and you know that. We've talked about that. But in the second one, it was a more complete, almost to the point, like I felt like a puddle lying on the floor. Uh, two consecutive nights where basically the ego was so gone that I was dysfunctional. And I still I had to teach. I was teaching all day long. So I had to pull myself together by 5 a.m. and go out and teach all day. And then the next night... Again, the same thing. But that allowed me to see that we need to embrace the ego. We need to love our ego and appreciate our ego and validate it for what it does for us, which takes care of us, but we're not run by it. So that became a very important point in 1994. In 2011 was the second fall for me. Uh, second descent of the mountain. And that one, basically I lost everything. Uh, everything. Reputation, spouse, students, my children, I mean, everything. Money, everything kind of f fell away. And that sent me into a kind of real looking again, what's going on, how do I find true peace because I was agitated and I, I was feeling a lot of stress. So I came up with a whole new way of meditating, which was much different than the traditional zazen, which is in a straight full lotus or half lotus posture with back straight, eyes open and very concentrated and where you can melt snow, <laughs> literally, you know, we talked about that. And I changed it to sitting comfortably in a chair legs down, relaxed, eyes closed, and going into very deep states, what we call samadhi, very deep states of, of peace and tranquility where there's very thin line between being awake and asleep. I'm totally present, totally awake, and yet the body is almost fully asleep. It's so restful that it's probably worth double the amount of time sleeping. Because I'll spend maybe two, three, four hours a night sleeping, and I'll spend anywhere from two to four hours a night meditating. And it's, it's, it's um, very rejuvenating and very relaxing. Uh, and in, in this state, there is a kind of sweetness to it that is very 
I could say almost intoxicating in the sense that it's probably the nicest state I can imagine being in. And it's, it's um, I'd rather do that than sleep. I'd rather do that than just about anything else. Uh, and so I look forward to the nights and I look forward to the times of, of sitting. And I generally, whenever I wake up at night, doesn't matter what time it is, then I just go sit for a couple hours and meditate. And you've mentioned that through that practice and through a few other things that you feel like now after a, a long path, you've cracked the code for what it takes to have happiness at least most of the time. Yeah. N- not the happiness because I'm doing something really fun, but the happiness that's omnipresent. Omnipresent. Yeah, and I was mentioning that I think there are a few things that seem to have to kind of fall into place or be present. And one of them is freedom, liberation. As long as we're not free, both on a physical and spiritual mental level, I think we can't be really happy, not not sustainably happy. So there has to be a, a freedom of mind and a freedom also physically, in other words, we're, we're, not, we're not stressed over finances, over where the next meal's going to come from, or how we're going to take care of our children or the mortgage or so forth. So there has to be... So, a, so money can buy happiness? I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> As you know very well, it does not. But, but having enough money... Enough to helps. S- helps. Enough money that you feel somewhat secure of course security is false anyways but you feel like you're not you're not worrying you're not stressing over how you're going to pay the bills okay so that, that's that kind of freedom is also important i think i think you know in the time where we could just go live on a beach in you know in maui here you know i mean i'm too old to probably go do that although that was always my ace in the hole <laughs> i used to carry a, a, a ticket to Hawaii, I figure that's at best or worst. I just go to Hawaii and live on the beach. You Eat know. coconuts and you'll be Eat, fine. Exactly, and papaya and all that, and mangoes. So there, there needs to be that freedom, that liberation, and then peace of mind. And I, I believe that most of us are in some kind of internal conflict. There's a, a conflict going on that prevents us from being at peace. Like it was just only. I think two years ago that my partner said, you know, you don't seem to have any internal conflict. And I realized she's right. I don't know when it left, but it's gone. There's no internal conflict. So we're not at war with ourselves, Because if we are, of course, there's no happiness. So what I found is we need that freedom, that peace and liberation, and then we can find that kind of happiness that we're talking about that's more sustainable happy and not just conditional. So it requires freedom, it requires peace, and it requires basic needs being met. Yeah, some security, some kind of false sense of, yeah, our basic needs being met that we're not, yeah. Now, we could call that even safety. Yeah, yeah. Now, for someone maybe listening to the show, they're commuting into work (laughs) right now. And uh, they're going into work to get a paycheck that probably isn't quite as big as they'd like it to be to have that feeling of of safety. Uh, so there's there's one hurdle that that you can overcome. So you know, spending uh, less money on things that that don't aren't useful or increasing uh, your career, things like that. Those can help you uh, to get those basic needs met. 
there's one study from a few years ago that said that uh, they were quantifying happiness on an income level, and they said for the average American, it was about seventy five thousand. It's probably that would mean eighty five thousand now, mm-hmm. which is a sizable salary actually. Right, right. And uh, it also depends on do you have dependents? dependents this was on average. You right, have kids and right. mortgages and all. Right. So let's assume that people realize okay, there is some way that I can make sure that I'm economically comfortable right. and I'm going to set myself on a path to doing that. Uh, but then the next one, the number of people who said, you know, Dave, how do I handle the the voice in my head, the inner critic right. and all that? That's the inner conflict you're talking That's about. Right. Exactly. So to achieve happiness, you got to have enough, uh, enough uh, basically a place to live and food and things like that. But then now you're faced with that other big challenge. What is the the fastest or easiest way to at least remove most of the inner conflict for people? It's a very good question. Uh, I know it's a little easy and maybe naive on my part to say you can do it without years of practice. I mean, it has been 46, 47 years of meditating. Uh, so I, I would be... I think doing injustice to say it didn't take time and it doesn't take a lot of meditation because I used to spend as much as 10, 12 hours a day when I was leading these retreats. Meditating one year was as much as nine months of the year. So there's a lot of meditation. There's a lot to be said. I think the big mind process, I now have what I call three legs of the stool that I feel are very important for my students that I, I tell them are essential. So one is meditating, that you do need to meditate. How much, I leave that up to them. I myself will do anywhere from one to about four hours a day, generally. Uh, one is kind of small amount. I, I rarely do that little, but let's say one to four hours a day of deep, relaxed meditation. I think that's pretty, pretty cru- crucial. And it's where there is no goal and you don't have an agenda. You don't, you don't have any aim in your meditation. So you're, you're meditating in the voice, what I call the apex. It's beyond thinking and not thinking. So I call it non-thinking. So you embrace your thinking mind. Because a lot of meditators think they must stop the mind, stop the thoughts. And the more you try to do that, it's like trying to wash blood off with blood. Mm-hmm. You know, The more you try to stop thinking, the more you think. So you have to get to this impartial place, this place where there's no preference for thinking over not thinking. And there's no judging your thinking if you're thinking, and there's no judging if you're not thinking, which you really do judge your non-thinking, but you do judge your thinking. So you have no preference for thinking over not thinking, for seeking over not seeking, because as long as you're seeking, it's kind of what you were talking about earlier, when is enough money? I've just decided it's enough. I don't have that much, but I decided it's enough. And that decision also allowed me peace of mind because I'm no longer seeking to be richer or get make bigger income or anything like that. It's enough. I can relax now. You, you remind me of a time in my life when I was 26, I made $6 million at the company that held Google's first servers. And I remember over lunch, I'm talking with another coworker in a similar situation. And I said, you know, uh, I'm just going to keep doing this until I have $10 million because I know I'll be happy when I have $10 million. And what you're saying there about, well, decide when you have enough. And the reality is that I had more than enough 
when right. I was a young man. Right. And so I kept doing things. And, well, you know, I lost my $6 million. <laughs> a little bit of ego going on there. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so, so you, your, your point there is you may actually already have enough depending on if you want to live a minimal lifestyle. Yeah. Because uh, one of the conflicts that I've, I've had over the years there's been times in my life where you know I would love to to go off like I did to Tibet and right. uh, for a couple of months and and you know, learn meditation from the masters, but I also have a career and and now a family and and there aren't many people listening. Yeah, you know, I can meditate for ten hours a day because you get fired if you did that exactly, <laughs> and then you're happy to. Well, I made a vacation out of it. Right? Yeah, <laughs> you get paid to meditate. It's different. Right? I got paid to do it. <laughs> that was smart. Um, yeah, it's at some point, and it took me to actually the sale of my house here in Kapalua, I really didn't reach that happiness until that sale went through because that was costing me a fortune and it was keeping a stress level on me. Once I sold that, the happiness just came because I did feel that security. It was enough. So I do say there is a physical element of some sense of it's enough and you're secure and you can be happy. I'm working on sort of putting together advice for people, advice that I wish that I had had when I was a young man. A lot of the bulletproof, the nutritional things, the cognitive enhancement, all these things are things. If someone would have just told me this, it would have saved me so much work and struggle and suffering and, and things like that. And a piece of advice I've heard a, a couple of times from really successful people is that when you get your first big win, whether it's you know a, a windfall of some sort or another, or uh, something happens, you you finally save a million dollars or whatever right. your number is, uh, that they say, you know, put that aside, manage it very conservatively because when you have that and you know that it's safe, it's not in high-risk investments in cryptocurrencies or whatever, uh, that it will sort of magically trigger that feeling I agree. Of, of safety but also of freedom. Of because, freedom, yeah. You know, I can quit my job tomorrow because I have what we called uh, a long time ago, I'll probably still call it, it's called fuck you money. Okay. Right? <laughs> I was going to call it a nest egg. But yeah, there yeah. you go. But yeah. if your boss comes to you and says, you know, I do this stuff that you yeah, hate, fuck you. You, you can just be like, you know what? No. Right? But if you have to make your next mortgage payment, you know, the answer is yes, sir. No, but you're absolutely right. I totally agree with that. That's what I'm saying. When's enough? And I, I know what I was going to say. As long as we're, it's never enough and we're always seeking more, we're never going to be happy. I yeah. guarantee that. As long as it, more is better. And we always think I need more and more. But we have to get to that place where we can make that decision. Okay, now is enough. I, I have enough and I can stop seeking to become wealthier or, or more famous or more prosperous or whatever it is. So that, that seeking keeps us from really being, you see. So, so you can still achieve more but not be seeking But more. not seeking it. Like, I, I feel I'm honestly not seeking it anymore. It doesn't mean that I'm not doing a lot. You know, I'm teaching as much as I ever. It doesn't look like it to me because I don't have a Zen center anymore and I'm not busy 24-7. I have a lot of time to myself. I'm here for three weeks on Maui, you know. I have a lot of spare time. But if you look at my schedule on BigMind.org, it looks like, my God, how does it you do it all? But it feels like very little compared to what I was doing. I'm not seeing because I love what I do. I love sharing. I love talking to people. I love seeing people awaken and have insights and find their own happiness and their own peace. So 
there is something that's pulling me, and, but it's, I'm not being driven by this pusher that's got to prove himself or achieve something and been there, done that kind of thing. It's an interesting thing for people who are looking to be more happy in their life, the idea to stop seeking more happiness or stop seeking more of anything and, and start allowing, which is very well, counterintuitive. But that's the key. The same thing happened with me. When I, I started Bulletproof, I'm going to write down all this stuff that I, I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars learning and, and the stuff that I wish I had known. And the idea is if five people read my little blog, uh, and it has the effect on them that it would have had on me, then like I win karma points. Like, like it, It's an act of service, and I just wish someone had done that for me. And that was you know, the genesis of the company, uh, which has, has gone on and on, but it was I never started Bulletproof out of seeking. Like, I'm right. going to go do this. I already had a good job with a salary. I right. was comfortable enough and all that. And, and so to be able to you know, write write sizable books and do this show and also run a venture-backed company and be what I like to think is a good husband and father and all. I don't know how I do it all. And if I was seeking on all those levels, I don't think I could, but it's more about doing the right thing and just allowing amazing stuff to happen. Well, that's the key word. If I was to say allowing is the key word, allowing it to happen, allowing yourself to be, allowing things to manifest rather than seeking or trying or efforting, you know? And that's, I started to talk about the three legs of the stool, yeah. I forgot. So one of them is the meditation of not seeking, okay. Not, okay, not not striving, and just learning to be. So we call it shikantaza, it means to just sit, to just be, to just be still and relaxed. And the other is the big mind work, because I do feel that that is a technology that has allowed people to experience an awakening, to experience insights into the self that would normally take years and years, even decades to have, and they can have that in one hour, say, or two hours, you know. I've got to give that a shot. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and, you know, I do these workshops which really allow people to, yeah. to experience that very deeply. So that's the second. And then the third, I still have people do koan practice. Because koan practice, and a lot of our listeners may not know what it is, but they could look it up the word. But koans are, you could say, insolvable problems with the rational mind. You have to transcend the dualistic, rational, cognitive mind and go beyond, find a place within you that transcends that uh, dualism where you're one with. And so you have koans, and you become one with the koan. And then how do you share that? Like you're sharing your things. Koans teach you how to share the awakened experience in probably the most precise and alive way that most of the time we depend on some kind of conceptualization. We depend on a kind of interpreting and it's not live. It's like if you shoved me into the water right now, it's not that cold, but it's cold enough for me. You shove me in that water and I go in and I get out and I say, wow, Dave, that was really cold. That's dead. You shove me in that water and I go, that's cold. That's really cold. You know, that's a live way of expressing the enlightenment. Mm -hmm. or the experience, the direct experience, whereas the other is dead. 
you've been there, you get into the water and you start retelling, wow, that was cold. That That's probably like 78 or something. And I like it, 90, you know. You right. know, it's dead. So koans help us express the teachings in a live, vibrant way, a very uh, energetic way that's living versus dead. So with these three legs, I say they all complement each other. Meditation, the big mind work, and the koan work really supplement and and augment each other. They, they, they really allow the other because they each have a quality to them that is very unique and the others won't quite do. So those are the tools that help to turn off the, the seeking and the, the voice exactly. in the And the head. happiness. And the happiness. Yeah. So that you've got your overall arching happiness strategy, which is have enough to feel safe and that your basic needs are met. Have freedom, including that, that, that uh, freedom to do the things that are important to you and all. And then the inner peace, and the inner peace, three lack pieces. Of con- lack right? of conflict. Yeah. Lack of conflict. Yeah. Come, may, maybe those last two both come from the the things you just mentioned from yeah. big and mind be, and meditation. And then be in a loving, supportive relationship uh, is really helpful. You know. Now, some Zen masters are not in relationships at all, right? Well, then they have to be in a loving, supportive relationship with themselves. Okay. Yeah. I'm in a very loving, supportive relationship, and I would say that has certainly helped me find my peace and happiness. I would say if I hadn't found that, maybe I still would be happy, but certainly that has really added uh, to be in a relationship where, I mean, it is about love, but it's also about complementing one another. And its uh, I don't mean just being complimentary. I mean complimenting in the sense that you're really working together. And I think the key there is complete honesty and transparency. Like in our relationship, we know anything could happen, but at least we don't lie. We're always truthful with one another, and we, com- uh, we, um, we um, are transparent. And that complements each other, and we help each other grow, and we tell the truth. And if we see something in the other, like... If she sees me getting inflated again, you know, she'll she'll tell me. If I see her being too frightened or fearful in her life, worrying too much, I'll tell her, you know. But we do it in a loving way that we're really learning and growing together and supportive of one another. I think that's also very important. So you would add a, a good relationship as another yes, probable if, thing to increase happiness. If we're in a relationship, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I would. Beautiful. Well, Gempo, thanks for sharing your recipe for happiness developed after only 46, 47 <laughs> years of, of working on it with a few a few falls in the middle that, that have been instrumental and uh, teaching you, you uh, oh, teaching you some things. And uh, for if you're listening now, this is one of our, our shorter episodes, and none of those things we just talked about uh, are super easy to achieve, <laughs> and that it takes some work to have a career. Uh, or some saving, uh, or investing, whatever you decide to do, so that you you feel like you have your financial needs met. But it's worth spending time and effort on that if you haven't done it. Uh, and if you find that your inner conflict is sabotaging you there, then you got to do your work on that. And, and that's certainly something that happened to me. I, I made a lot of money and kept losing it over and over until I dealt with my inner conflict. So there's work there. There's work around dealing with the voice in your head. And there's even work in finding and creating healthy relationships. But if you boil it down to those three things, those feel more achievable to me 
than this, oh, I'll be happy someday or you know, I'm happy right now, but you know, I'm at a rave. Right. <laughs> so, you know, it, it can be all over the place. So I, I hope that, that this podcast is, is helpful for, for distilling some, some knowledge, quite a lot of knowledge actually, down into a few areas of focus for you. Well, thank you, Dave. Kempo, yeah. I appreciate you being here. And it's such a, a nice serendipity that we both happen to be in Maui to get away from the, the winter lack of sun at the same time. And uh, we actually ran into uh, each other at a local Safeway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, you're here? Let's hang out. So we got to do an extra podcast. Thanks for listening to Bulletproof Radio. If you liked this episode, you know what to do. Uh, go out there and be happy. That would be a really good thing to do. And uh, if you're still working on that, you could have a brief act of gratitude, which means going to bulletproof.com slash iTunes and leaving a quick review for the show. And you could also check out Gempo's big mind, big heart meditation work, which I think is, is worthy of your consideration because he's one of the few Zen masters out there who's willing to say, maybe we can do this a little faster. And that is not an easy thing for any meditation type of person to say, but I fundamentally believe from my experience that there are ways that we can uh, progress more quickly and that when we take those steps, any of the steps in this podcast, it actually makes us nicer people and then you get this great dividend because you're nicer to people around you automatically without having to think about it and that's kind of a cool thing. So have an awesome day. Yeah, I agree. That's a cool thing. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.